This week on Life and Faith. I can't understand everything that God is or wants. And therefore, I can't be absolutely dogmatically certain about anything. And I think this is often forgotten, but it's basic to the public sphere. My birth certificate actually doesn't have a name on it. It says child 2508. Desire is a basic human yearning. Tell those people that you love them. Tell those people whom you love that you love them. Welcome to Life and Faith from the Centre for Public Christianity. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Natasha Moore. And in this episode, we're talking about church and state, which means, of course, we're talking about power, having it and not having it, what Christians have done with it, and what it's done to them over the centuries. How could the Church of England suggest an atheist as Bishop of Bury St Edmunds? Well, very easily. The Church of England is primarily a social organisation, not a religious one. Is it? There is. It's part of the rich social fabric of this country. So bishops need to be the sort of chaps who speak properly, know which knife and fork to use. <laughs> the sort of people one can look up to. This, of course, is the urbane and cynical Sir Humphrey explaining to the British PM how the world works in the classic TV series, Yes, Prime Minister. (laughs) Yeah, I love this. Their conversations, a pretty savage satire on the established church in England at a particular moment in time. But it nods to a lot of the questions that come up whenever religion and government get cosy or come into conflict. We are under no illusions here that we can cover this mammoth topic um, in the next 25, 30 minutes. So here is how we're approaching it. We just want to bring you a series of thought bubbles from a series of brilliant thinkers. Uh, They are coming at this from a bunch of different angles. So what we're hoping is just to spark some new thoughts, maybe in new directions on a subject where we often get stuck in a bit of a rut. Mm. Yeah, so we're going to take you back to what is sometimes considered notorious, uh, the beginning of Christendom in the West, the conversion of Emperor Constantine to Christianity, and his, therefore, conversion of the Roman Empire. The Oxford scholar Teresa Morgan is going to be our guide for that part. But let's start with the here and now and why this relationship between church and state matters. Here's Miroslav Volf from the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. People generally who think that uh, in terms of separation of church and state, they tend to think in terms of privatization of religion. The more private it is, it's for your home, it's for your heart, it's for the small community of believers, but the public space should be free of religion, should be neutral with regard to uh, religions emptied of religious uh, concerns. Wolf says this way of thinking about it is a big mistake. It presumes then simply that there is such a thing as a neutral worldview. And so my sense is that we need to create spaces in which people with different overarching interpretations of life can participate on equal uh, equal terms. That means not a privatization of uh, religion, and privatization of religion in any case, I think, is problematic because life is a kind of uh, unity. A life cannot be lived 
uh, even I as a private person cannot live simply as an individual demurred from what the political system as a whole or what the larger society as a whole, how it is being structured, so that I don't think there is anything like a private faith in that sense. And I think faith has by its nature, like Christian faith has by its nature, a goal to be concerned for the good broader than just of my own or my own little community. Obviously, we here are the Center for Public Christianity. So this idea of faith for the common good, not a purely private or privatized faith, we're quite keen on that idea. Uh, There is a long history, though, that explains why people do get nervous about the relationship of religion to the state. Uh, A history that, in the case of Christianity in the West, goes all the way back to the Roman Emperor Constantine in the 4th century. Now, Constantine famously converted to Christianity after seeing a vision on the eve of a decisive battle. And then after winning that battle and becoming emperor, he changed things dramatically for Christians. They went from being a persecuted minority to having favor and support across the Roman Empire. Now, there are a lot of myths about Constantine. He did not, in fact, make it compulsory to be Christian. And he didn't invent or reinvent what Christians believe at the Council of Nicaea either or tell the church what was going to be in the Bible. But there is a lot of disagreement about what his legacy has been for the church and state relationship. And in all of that, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that this guy, Constantine, was a real person navigating what must have been a Mm -hmm. fairly complex situation. Here's Theresa Morgan. She's professor of Greco-Roman history at Oxford. Constantine's conversion and his treatment of the church after his conversion are an extraordinary twist in the story of the later Roman Empire. And quite what he was up to, what motivated him, is a very fascinating question. We have to remember that all the evidence suggests that Constantine had a sincere conversion experience. There is no sign that he was brought up as a Christian. The evidence agrees, the sources agree, uh, that he had this blinding conversion experience in 312 before his decisive battle against his rival for the imperial throne, which brought him to power. There's every reason to suppose that that was a genuine experience. So first and foremost, he declared himself a follower of Jesus Christ and he promoted Christians. He, first of all, declared that Christians were no longer going to be persecuted. He restored their property to them. He passed an edict of toleration for Christianity in the empire. And then he actively favoured the Christian church in some, not enormous ways, but some ways that were quite important to the church. I think there were probably several reasons for that. It was perfectly normal for a Roman emperor to have a favourite god and promote that god. The Emperor Augustus, the first Roman emperor, had had a special relationship with Apollo and with Venus and promoted their cults. In the third century, shortly before Constantine's rule, two emperors had um, made a favourite of the deity Sol Invictus, unconquered son, and promoted the cult of Sol. So for an emperor to have a favourite god and promote that god uh, was not unusual, particularly, and nobody would have thought Constantine was doing anything out of order in promoting the god who had brought him to victory. That's quite a standard thing to do. Morgan also says there may have been some political expediency involved. We're seeing here the beginnings not just of the church having an ally in the top job, but of those in power hoping to leverage the local and, let's say, ethical power of the church. 
We have to remember that um, at the point of his victory, Constantine had won a civil war, so the empire had been in some disarray for six years beforehand. And before that, it had been carved up among a college of four emperors. And he can't have been sure who would be loyal to him. Now, in this new cult that he had adopted, he discovers a sort of power structure, a local power structure that goes right across the empire, which is parallel to all the existing power structures, and this is the bishops and their bishoprics. I just wonder whether he saw in those bishops a sort of a set of eyes and ears, a set of authorities in local regions around the empire who might have just helped him keep an eye out on the regions and helped him govern up to a point. Now, he used, of course, all the existing structures of the empire as well, but there are a new set of clients, a new set of allies in the provinces for him, and that may well have been very attractive to him. It's also possible that he was attracted by Christians' social cohesion and the, the care that they took of each other, that he thought that that might be a force for social cohesion in the empire. Although, since he didn't force anybody else to become a Christian, you know, he wasn't insisting that everybody in the empire should, should join that social group. The simple version of this story is that the church before Constantine was an underdog faithful to its principles and afterwards it became rich and bloated and drunk on power and I guess oppressive. Morgan offers some specifics about what did change with the so-called conversion of the empire. As Constantine's interest in the church became more widely known and the church came to greater prominence, I suspect that, first of all, the biggest changes were for the church itself. And the really huge one, of course, was that the church could just come out from underground. Christians could start building physical churches and putting up grave monuments and generally marking their presence on the landscape. And, of course, Constantine himself also marked the landscape. He built not only lots of normal Roman public buildings, but also a lot of churches, most famously in Rome, in Jerusalem, in Constantinople, his new city. So the physical, the geographical landscape changed and became marked with Christianity. Christian bishops and senior clergy began to wear purple, the imperial colour. They began to wear the clothes of Roman magistrates. So they began to see themselves as very establishment figures and dress like very establishment figures and presumably be seen as their, by their congregations as much more establishment figures. Even though clergy were exempted from holding city magistracies, the offices of the church in some ways were reimagined as equivalent to magistracies and as political offices. So bishops must have become grander, I think, in the fourth century. And probably the hierarchy between bishops and their people got steeper and higher in the fourth century. We can see how this kind of thing could lead to greater dominance of the church and in some cases a more worldly and corrupt clergy. Morgan has some interesting things to say, though, about the influence in the other direction, how Christianity changed the empire. Changes in the wider society took longer to percolate through, I think. And a very good example is the keeping of Sunday. Constantine passed a law uh, saying that uh, from now on there would be a Sabbath. Sunday would be kept as a day of rest by law. What he probably meant by that was that... No public business would be done on a Sunday. The law courts wouldn't sit. The emperor wouldn't dispense justice. The emperor wouldn't do business on a Sunday, which was what had happened on festival days in the Roman Empire before it was Christian. 
But gradually, the idea spread through society that Sunday should be an actual day of rest. So by about 100 years after Constantine, we find even sort of farm workers and slaves are being given the day off on a Sunday. So that's quite a big shift, the idea that everybody should have one day of rest in seven. But it takes time to percolate through society. Alongside his privileging of the church, his support for the church, Constantine went on being, in many ways, a very typical Roman emperor, ruling through the laws and the bureaucracy of the Roman Empire, very much as he found it. And he tweaked it a bit here and there, as all emperors did, but he ruled using it on the whole very much as he found it. But gradually through time, we also find that Christianity begins to affect the way that laws are made and the way that the duties of magistrates, for instance, are described. So if we look at the Theodosian Code, the great Roman law code, which was put together a hundred years after Constantine and in which many of the laws are made in the period between Constantine and the early fifth century, we find, for instance, a lot more talk about trust and good faith. So trust faith that great virtue which becomes central to Christianity as it was not to any earlier religion begins to get into the law and into writing about magistracies too. too. So there's much more emphasis in the Theodosian Code on how important it is for magistrates to be trustworthy and how important it is when they demit office to go on living in the area where they held office so that they can be held to account, so they can be found trustworthy. So the language of Christianity uh, justice, loyalty, trustworthiness, hope, begins to get into the law, into the bones of the law, and into the way that people think about how people should discharge their public office, and gradually changes the culture, I think, changes the culture of the empire over time. You know, being a bishop is just a matter of status. The question of dressing up in cassocks and gaiters. Yes, <laughs> though gaiters are now only worn at significant religious events, like the Royal Garden Party. <laughs> well, the church is trying to be more relevant. To God? No, of course not, Prime Minister. <laughs> I mean, relevant in sociological terms. So, the ideal candidate from the Church of England's point of view would be a cross between a, a socialite and a socialist. Precisely. <laughs> This is Life and Faith, and we're talking about religion and politics. Not, has to be said, for the first time on the podcast, and probably not the last. Uh, that's right. From 4th century Rome to modern-day Downing Street, or in the case of, yes, Prime Minister, I guess <laughs> 1980s Downing Street, right. which is quite some time ago now, Christianity and the state have had a complicated relationship there are lots of places currently where this matters, whether that's in election campaigns or in education or in healthcare, and that's just to name a few. Yeah, and neither religious politicians nor politically active religious people are going away anytime soon. So these questions of power and faith are important. Now, looking back on what happened in those early days when Christianity became friends with government, it is a mixed picture. And Theresa Morgan sums it up nicely by calling power a double-edged sword. The great challenge to any religious tradition, I think, is having power and what you do with power. And having responsibility, you know, because hand in hand with power goes responsibility. 
And power can be power for both good and evil. It can bring temptation for both good and evil. And it brings responsibility for doing both good and evil. I don't think I would want to guess whether acquiring power, acquiring the ear of the emperor, and eventually becoming the cult of the empire, was better or worse for Christianity. People of faith might say that it is worthwhile to have responsibility in a social situation, in a state, if you can use that responsibility for good. If you're going to have responsibility, then you have to deal with the temptation of power and using the power for evil. Undoubtedly, Christianity changed. You know, it became more establishment, it became more interested in money, it became more interested in protecting itself in its own prestige because of being allied with imperial power. On the other hand, it acquired opportunities to do what it saw as good. So I think it's always a very two-edged thing, acquiring political power for any religious tradition, probably, including early Christianity. We want to offer you some more brief takes here on power, the church, history, from a few other eminent thinkers we've interviewed on the topic. Uh, a big picture view comes from theologian Sarah Coakley. We had her on the podcast uh, not so long ago talking about desire. And she argues that it wasn't Constantine that corrupted the church, as some would argue, but that this abuse of power is something all institutions have a tendency towards. I think the first thing I want to say here, and it's tremendously important because it often gets lost in discussions about Christianity's failures, is to distinguish between the institutions of the church and the reality to which our founder, Jesus of Nazareth, called us. And there has never been, and you can see this already happening in the letters of Paul, there has never been a perfect form of Christianity according to Jesus's vision. It is always confected out of sinful and frail humans. And the institutional parts of it are themselves, of course, subject to corruption. Though I don't myself take the view that is very popular these days, especially in America, that it was Christianity's collusion with the state in the fourth century, the Constantinian settlement, that marked the immediate and insidious downfall of Christianity. Rather, I would say that all institutionalized forms of Christianity, and that even includes forms that appear not to be institutionalized, such as charismatic movements, um, Pentecostal movements, even the Quakers, who are curiously institutionalized in their own ways, all these are subject to corruption, although some are better at monitoring the dangers of corruption. And where you have a collusion between church and state, that is unthinking in its continuance, then there is probably more danger. I don't want Canon Stanford. What am I to do? Well, you could turn both candidates down, but that would be exceptional and not advised. Even though one of them wants to get God out of the Church of England and the other wants to get the Queen out? <laughs> well, the Queen is inseparable from the Church of England. What about God? <laughs> I think he's what's called an optional extra. <laughs> The gap Coakley talks about between an authentic Christianity and the institution that is always being more or less corrupted is fodder for comedy and, let's be honest, lament. Now, without defending the church's record on power and politics, someone who is 
always keen to complicate our understanding of the past is Nick Spencer, our friend from Theos Think Tank in London. And here he is on what things were like several centuries after Constantine at the height of Christendom. If you wanted an image of the kingdom of God, I don't think you'd go to the medieval papacy to give it to you. It's another one of those great examples of, you know, in the same way as people followed the Prince of Peace violently, they followed the, the man who came in poverty through riches. It's remarkable how quickly we can drift away from the original message and the original person. So there are no shortage of stones that you can pick up and throw at the medieval papacy for being opulent and corrupt and self-serving. But here's an interesting twist to the story. What happens in the Gregorian Reformation in the 11th, 12th century, this is the Reformation of the papacy, is that the papacy becomes aware of itself as a self-contained society that owns its own existence to God, not to secular authorities. Now that is certainly how the direction it had drifted in the the 10th century. And first in the papacy of Gregory VII, and then subsequently through a number of quite muscular popes afterwards, the church aggressively asserts its authority, first and foremost, to appoint its own bishops across Europe. Now, Gregory VII is not an attractive human being. Innocent III is not an attractive human being. But what they do is they carve out a space in which secular authority, political authority, is not final. And that has been called the first secular revolution in European history, because one of the ideas of secularism is that it limits political power in order for what we might call free civil society. Arguably, the papacy of this period could only have done that because it was so big, so powerful, so rich, and so self-serving. So it's an interesting paradox. Nobody wants to emulate that particular papacy because it's not morally attractive and it's certainly not Christ-like. But it's by being rich and powerful and aggressive that it actually managed to stand up to emperors and kings who were also rich and powerful and aggressive. The bottom line is no one comes out of history with clean hands. It's a very messy process. So was Christendom a disaster for the West and for the church? What legacy has it left to us all? Theologian David Bentley Hart weighs the pros and cons, but says he's glad that the church has less power than it used to. All in all, the loss of political power, and even to some degree, the loss of general cultural sway is a good thing uh, for Christian life, for the church and the churches. It's a delicate balance one has to strike here. One can lament Christendom, and I think validly, for all it did to corrupt and compromise Christian principles. One can praise it for all it did to humanize and deepen the moral expectations of Western peoples and peoples around the world. But if one does either exclusively, one, of course, distorts the story in a dangerous way. But at the end of the story of Christendom, Now with Christendom and Eclipse, it's potentially a golden age for a smaller but more uh, genuinely principled, committed Christian community, Christian minority ultimately perhaps. It's not a minority here in the States yet, but I'm, well, question of just how Christian American Christianity is, but that's a... 
But uh, it is the case that the earliest Christians understood themselves as having here no enduring city. Christ suffered outside the gates, and this is more than just a, a symbolic thing. Paul in Romans uh, advised Christians to be obedient to state authority, uh, at least to the degree that it was just, or, uh, but had no expectation that Christians would ever wield such authority. Uh, assumed they were always going to be politically and socially a weak faction who had a message that was best promoted and best preserved and best lived out in weakness. So to me, uh, even when I'm at my most cynical regarding the moral resources of modernity and what I sometimes take to be its kind of fatuous uh, complacencies, at the end of the day, I'm quite happy uh, that the throne and altar accommodation was shattered and that the church does not wield that kind of power and uh, as a result has the opportunity to reclaim its Christian essence rather than its mission for Christendom. May I give you the career details of Canon Stanford? Yes, please do. Well, after Theological College, he became chaplain to the Bishop of Sheffield. He moved on to be the diocesan advisor on ethnic communities and social responsibility. He also organized conferences on interfaith interface and interface between Christians and Marxists and between Christians and the women of Greenham Common. <laughs> then he went on to be the university chaplain at the University of Essex, then vice principal of a theological college and is now, as you know, secretary to the disarmament committee of the British Council of Churches. Has he ever been an ordinary vicar of a parish? Good heavens, no, Prime Minister. <laughs> Clergymen who want to be bishops try to avoid pastoral work. Saying is that Canon Stanford is a political troublemaker. Well, not exactly, but it could be a thorn in your side on several issues strikes, public expenditure on welfare, inner cities, unemployment, defense. It's interesting, isn't it, that nowadays politicians want to talk about moral issues and bishops want to talk politics. <laughs> One last clip from Yes Prime Minister there for you. To bring us home, a couple of last thoughts. Now, Bernard, in that clip, gave us a caricatured view of the Christian activist. But here's Joel Edwards, a Jamaican-born British pastor and advocate who worked on things like racial justice and religious freedom. Sadly, he died of cancer in June 2021. He describes a positive relationship between Christian faith and the powers that be. Christian faith hasn't always done itself a favour by becoming too close with power. That's true. There are lots of examples about, which illustrates that, which demonstrates that. Um, But I think at its best moments, Christian faith has exemplified what it means to be a prophet at the gate of the king. And written in the very heart of the Christian faith in the Old Testament books, was this constant presence of the prophet challenging the authority, challenging the king to remember the poor, to not embezzle people's properties, to look out for the widows, to act justly. And today, I think exactly the same challenges 
are with us. I think the Christian faith is still at its very, very best when in local councils, in national settings, in international settings, we have Christians who speak up not just for themselves in issues of human rights or poverty alleviation or indeed challenging corruption, but talking on behalf of the rest of the world. As you'll have noticed, this episode has not been about any of the specific hot-button issues that are in the news right now around politics and religion. And I say that knowing that you might be listening to this long after we've released it, but pretty confident that there's going to be something that springs to mind for you when I say that. Whatever the specifics of the issue, we hope that this history and these reflections on power and Christian faith will have sparked something new for you. I'm sure that every one of us could use this reminder. It comes from Craig Calhoun, who was formerly the head of London School of Economics, and it's about the importance of humility in the public sphere. One thing to think about when we consider religion in the public sphere is whether our experience of religion is dogmatic certainty or doubt and hope that we'll understand better. There are settings in which certain kinds of religious people, some very fundamentalist Christians and atheists both get along with each other and are more commonly represented. And the common denominator is certainty. So that atheists and fundamentalist religious people share an idea of absolute certainty. But many religious people have an attitude of doubt, an attitude of desiring more confidence, of wanting to learn more deeply, and therefore a basic religious attitude of humility. I can't understand everything that God is or wants, and therefore I can't be absolutely dogmatically certain about anything. And I think this is often forgotten, but it's basic to the public sphere, because the public sphere isn't just people shouting from different positions of dogmatic certainty. It is people engaged in more nuanced conversations where each is humble enough to know that he or she doesn't have the whole truth. You've been listening to Life and Faith from CPX with Simon Smart and Natasha Moore. In this episode, we've heard from Miroslav Volf, Teresa Morgan, Sarah Coakley, Nick Spencer, David Bentley Hart, Joel Edwards, and Craig Calhoun. That's quite a list of names there. All the clips from today's episode, with the exception of Yes, Prime Minister, are from our collection of interviews that we conducted for the documentary For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. We have literally hundreds of these grabs, ranging from under a minute up to five minutes or so, and they're on an abundance of topics. All of today's clips came from a category called Church and State, if you want to go check them out. You can browse the collection and use them for free for your own purposes. Just go to publicchristianity.org interviews. Next week. Dad had his complete works of Shakespeare that his mum had bought for him when he was in high school before he was kicked out. And so I started reading that and I realised there was this whole world of poetry outside of Australian bloodthirsty bush poetry. I think I'd just imbibed poetry my whole life and so I guess it just felt really natural to start writing it. <laughs>